Cursing your video store for not having enough horror titles? Well, grab onto your seats and prepare for Vidmark Entertainment to take you on the dark side with these upcoming chilling titles to fill that horror void. You're an old man yelling at clouds. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me again this week, because of the problems we talked about last week, Cecil is here. I'm back. And with him being back, Peter is here for now. We'll, we'll see how his internet holds out. I'm here for the time being. For the time being. What you guys need to do for the time being is go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free Power O-Ring, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, tonight we're going to talk about the direct-to-video market. Really, what happened to it? I know Cecil's going to fight with me on something later, but we're also going to talk about why streaming and Netflix has killed the direct-to-video market and is actually making films worse by just its very presence. Before we get into all that, when I say direct-to-video, what do you think of? Do you... Do you go to a low-budget cash-in sequel, or do you go more towards that late 80s, early 90s, where the film could still have a $10 million budget and name stars and just missed the theater for some reason? I go more toward then, to the to the 80s and 90s, where you had a lot of those uh, like canon action films that would come out and wouldn't necessarily make it to theaters, but still would be just as entertaining. It was a time when middle-class filmmaking was actually a thing, because you had all these different distribution companies, and they could kind of existed to keep like video stores well stocked and whatnot because there are certain movies that as you said wouldn't make it to theaters so you needed a market for something like this and i feel like streaming has really eliminated that sort of thing so you don't have as many of these smaller companies floating around you just have a lot of these like there's certain companies around that are doing it for cash in sake and straight to video movies do at least to me seem much cheaper and much more lowbrow than they used to and that there's a difference between like an independent film and a straight to video film like you you have two right now but the straight to video stuff now compared to what it used to be considering a lot of the straight to video stuff nowadays is just like some asylum schlock it's really different than say like a chuck norris actioneer that would come out in the uh in the mid 80s or early 90s I would even say the benchmark would have been Full Moon. Full Moon, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, absolutely embraced direct-to-video, and they owned it for quite a long time. Mm Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my go-to when I talk about, when I think of direct-to-video is the glory days of Full Moon. They, uh, they absolutely nailed it. They had the market, they understood it, 
they saw it as like pro, not a con. Like you had a lot of actors and actresses that, uh, oh my God, our video is going direct to, you know, our movie's going direct to video. Whereas they made movies specifically for the home video market and they made a killing at it because they were embracing it and they were releasing them on a monthly schedule and they were serializing the movies. You know, they, they were doing, you know, they had Puppet Master, they had Trancers, they were trying to, uh, create these, you know, ongoing series and it was great it was uh, it was wonderful and uh, i think that they had it down right at the time and then uh as with a lot of things the market changed and it just uh, it wasn't really the same uh people weren't really going to uh the the blockbuster videos and all that quite as much as they used to and i think part of it too is more because of uh we had the mom and pop shops and we had a lot you know they had a lot of variety it wasn't just all the big movies it was the big movies and the little movies and so that's why those movies flourished because you had people that would go and they'd see the big movies and then they would also check out oh well here's uh puppet master or whatever and they would look at that but then when something like blockbuster came along they focused so much on nothing but the blockbusters that a lot of the smaller films were relegated to the side shelves and uh, they didn't really do as well and i think that that's a large part of what hurt them was that uh, they weren't promoted as much as uh, like the big movies they get 900 copies of spider-man but they would get like one copy of uh doll man or something if you were lucky Part of that is is correct that it's market trends, but there's also financial aspect. Before we get into that, you you hit on something I wanted to talk about anyway, and that's a lot of people did not consider these quote real movies, and some of these are coming from people who generally respect. For instance, in Tom Roston's fantastic book, I Lost It at the Video Store, he has c- confessions and you know interviews with people like Kevin Smith, John Sayles, Quentin Tarantino, people like that, and at one point Tarantino in the book talks about how before Miramax picked up Reservoir Dogs, they'd already made the movie. IVE, the home video distributor, was about to pick the movie up and put it out direct to video instead of theatrically. And he says, Mm. and I quote, I was a bit nervous about making it with a home video company. To me, it wouldn't count if it was on home video. It would need to get theatrical play, unquote. Oh, fucking hell. And I thought that was so insulting that, oh, if it doesn't play theaters, it's not a real movie. And that's coming from a filmmaker, no matter what you think about Tarantino, he respects films. And for him to say that, it kind of broke my heart a little bit. That is uh insulting to everybody's intelligence when you consider the fact this man is inspired almost for the most part by films that didn't make it to theaters. Just let that sink in. This is a guy who's inspired by, like, exploitation in, like, movies that you would find in, like, the bottom of a bargain bin or hidden somewhere in a video store. Like, usually exploitation schlock kind of stuff. For him to say that makes me want to slap him right in the fucking face. Well, it's kind of funny because I had never even heard of Reservoir Dogs until it was on video. And uh, I think that that's where... I'm in the same boat. I missed it theatrically. I found it on VHS. Yeah, like one of my buddies saw it and was like, holy crap, you got to see this movie. And I watched, you know, I went and rented it and was like, wow, you know, this is great. That's the thing. It's like the majority of people didn't see that. I'm actually curious to see. Yeah, it opened in 19 theaters. 
it's it's full uh it, it made 2.8 million dollars theatrically which you know isn't bad for for 92 or whatever but i'm sure they made a much bigger killing on uh, home video so is that really a theatrical release if you know if you release in 19 theaters i mean he's making it sound like you know oh, i can only release it in uh, you know and i mean so many of the movies like like peter said uh he's influenced by people that played in theaters that a lot of people wouldn't consider to be theaters the grindhouse theaters the, that kind of thing and I, the majority I, 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 of i think them- what he meant though was the stigma that direct to video had i think that's what he was meaning to say the underdogs and of the the grindhouse theaters i mean i just was a video i was just working on i was talking about how tarantino was influenced by jack hill and uh you know that was one of his uh big influencers and that guy didn't you know the big bird cage and nothing but exploitation it's it's just weird i don't know sometimes he just says things that that eh, maybe aren't on you know on with the rest of the stuff that he means no matter what he meant, he did have a point. A lot of people don't consider direct-to-video films to be real films. That They consider it just secondary trash. In a weird way, what a lot of people think of direct-to-video films prior to 1989 were theatrical. They might have been drive-in movies or things like that, but, you know, they were theatrical films. They were made for a theatrical presentation. The movie that really hmm. started what we think of as the direct-to-video film is a film that wasn't even direct-to-video, strangely enough. And that was 1989 Sex, Lies, and Videotape. A movie, Steven Soderbergh's first film, a movie I haven't seen in 25 years, but I remember just being f***ing boring as hell. That movie was made by Outlaw Pictures and made to be a direct-to-video film with a $1.2 million budget. They got picked up by Miramax, who was still getting into the Miramax we would, you know, come to know in the 90s. They saw something in it, and they released it theatrically. And it only made $24 million over its budget theatrically. But that was made to be a direct-to-video film. And the strange thing is, they were trying, Miramax was trying to figure out the units of it. Because back then, this is when Blockbuster is, you know, on its rise. They're like, okay, price the tape at $80 a tape, and it's going to cost us $20 a tape, so that's a $60 win, blah, blah, blah. When that came out on video, they sold an estimated 800,000 tapes worldwide of Sex, Lies, and Videotape. How many people listening to this show have even seen that movie? And it's one of the the most common VHS tapes out there outside of a Disney tape. And after that, people started to see, wow, you know, this direct-to-video thing, actually, these are good movies. These are movies that can play in theaters. In a strange way, Sex, Lies, and Videotape broke the mold for everyone else to jump in. It completely debunks this idea that direct-to-video movies are, you know, without merit. They, they clearly do have a lot of merit to them, and sometimes movies just don't make it to the theater. It looks like, like, I don't mind art house movies. I watch a lot of artsy stuff, and it depends. Sometimes it, it works. It is very well directed, I will say that. I mean, you can see, this is Soderbergh's first film, and you can see the talent behind there. I just, again, going off 25-year-old memory, I remember it being boring as sin. It's kind of, I have a feeling I would probably feel the way that I felt about Birdman. I started watching it, and I'm like, wow. This is really well acted. This is really well directed. I don't care about any of this. I made it about a half hour into the movie and I turned it off. And I, and it was no through no fault of the movie. I under I saw what they were going for. I thought they were doing a really good job with it, but it just it 
had zero interest. It, like, I didn't care. I think that with, with something like Sex Lies and Videotape, it did actually end up being a good thing because it maybe made people see that uh, uh, the direct-to-video market is not this uh, shameful thing that some people are just snobbish. In a weird way, it legitimized, even though, like I said, technically it was not direct-to-video, but it was made as one, it legitimized direct-to-video. And then after that, that's when you started to see, I mean, Miramax was a big proponent at for a while there of putting out, you know, you'd have all these crime thrillers with Lance Henriksen and John Saxon and Michael Ironside. One, one of the big things was these things would still have nine, ten million dollar budgets. They'd never hit a theater. You'd see them on the video store shelf. That's where places like Miramax were so amazing in the early 90s. I don't see another studio ever having given both Kevin Smith or Quentin Tarantino a chance at that period other than Miramax. I mean, l- let's face it. Clerks? while it did play theaters, was always destined to be a, a direct-to-video movie. And it yeah. was it was a pinnacle of what you could do with a no-budget direct-to-video film. Well, it's, it definitely has the vibe of, like, a student film, because it pretty much is. I mean, he was only, um, like, a couple years out of high school when he made that movie, wasn't it? He funded it by overmaxing two credit cards and selling his comic book collection. He got a refund because he was, he was going to film school, and he only went a couple weeks and was like, this is a bunch of horse shit. So yeah. he got his money back, and it was like, I'm going to make my own movie. And so he took that, and yeah. Yeah, he sold his comic book collection, and maxed it, yeah. But it, it works so well because of the amount of heart and passion put into it and just sort of happenstance as well. Like you never would have thought a movie like that would end up in theaters. You would have thought it would just kind of either end up being forgotten or ended up direct to video because it's just this little, little, uh, high school buddies getting together to make a movie kind of thing. I mean, the guy playing Randall wasn't even an actor. That was just somebody that Kevin Smith knew in high school because he decided that he didn't have the range to play Randall. I mean, that character was originally written for kevin smith that's why he gets all the best lines yeah and kevin smith was like fuck i can't i can't memorize any of this and i can't do it so he wrote himself as a silent bob instead so that's that's just sort of the the amazing happenstance that happens in that movie because you have you have this guy who doesn't even hasn't had any traditional acting lessons or anything and he ends up being in my opinion randall is the standout character of that film funniest character he's the most in my opinion, he's the most relatable character. I, Dante's just a fucking schmuck. But just everything about Clerks is this sort of magical happening of, of things that shouldn't have worked but ended up working so well. And it's it's a testament to a lot of movies that are straight to video that, that end up having this magic to them that certain blockbusters don't have. There's there's a side of, of direct to video that I think a lot of people don't see. And a lot of it is from the uh you know the eighties and the early nineties. I mean the early nineties was a was a great time in general for uh for straight to video stuff. People like to say that that the asylum is still, you know, keeping the direct to video market alive. No, they're not. And a lot <laughs> of people, a lot of people like to say that Netflix is the new video store, and that the movies that no. are either not necessarily Netflix originals, but that you know, ninety nine percent of us are going to first encounter on Netflix. That that's the new way to do it, but it's not. There's a financial side to this, and you might go, ah, that's just business. No, it's not. Netflix, without meaning to, I don't think there's malice here, has accidentally destroyed the entire middle class filmmaking. Because it used to be, you'd be able to 
pre-sell your movie and with so many units at such and such a price. For instance, in the I Lost It at the Video Store book, Richard Gladstein, he ran IVE Entertainment in the 80s. This is how he would figure out the budget. This is when they were doing the sequels to Children of the Corn, Howling, Silent Night, Deadly Night, and that. He, he, he would figure out, quote, We would always figure 40 bucks a tape was our profit, and we would sell them at, for 56 at a store. So you take off the duplication and marketing costs, etc. When I was running my numbers, if 40 bucks a tape was my profit, if you could sell 40,000 units, that's 1.6 million. So I'll spend 1.2 million on the on the movie. Roughly, those were the numbers. Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. If I sell 30,000 units, that's 1.2 in profit. Now, so I'll spend 900,000 dollars. So what he was saying is. The pre-sales allowed them to keep the budgets at a relatively even keel. What happens with streaming, Netflix pays you 3000 bucks for an independent film. That's it. That's worldwide. You get paid once. You can't keep making movies for $100,000 if you're making three grand off of it. You have yeah. to make up the rest in DVD sales. And those are tanking because of services like Netflix. So a service like Netflix inadvertently is driving down the value of film, which is driving down the available budgets because you're not going to get investors if you're likely to not make a profit because it's only going to be seen on Netflix and maybe you'll sell a couple of thousand DVDs, which still won't come up with your budget. So Really, when it comes down to it, Netflix is bad for independent films. Yes, it's good for the film viewer. It's terrible for the film market. Well, I mean, you you have a point, but the thing is, it's it's the the movie machine in general. I did a video a few weeks back where I was talking about how Paramount had dropped the crazies they were supposed to produce it but at the time they were going through some inner um, reworkings and decided that they no longer wanted to produce small films they were only doing a hundred million dollar and up films and as we've seen it's not working out for them because you know uh they Man, have paramount's had a bad half decade haven't they yeah, they've been failing. And it's like, because of the fact, if you have a movie that costs $10 million and it flops, well, it hurts, but you can kind of suck it up. And usually you'll, you'll still end up making your money back. If you have a $150 million movie that flops, it's a lot harder to bounce back from that. It's that kind of mindset that is also ruining a lot of the smaller films. As far as the Netflix distribution method goes, it does stink. And you, like, if you're a filmmaker, you really can't rely on that income for uh for anything it it just it it stinks and because netflix the way that they've been working it is they would um make a deal with the company and would be like okay we have access to these movies here is x amount of money and you know they they do it that way so from a business perspective the way that they're doing it and they're doing it well they didn't set out to dismantle the home video market, but that was really just a side effect of the way that things were. And the honest truth is, it is an easy, an easy way to get movies to you. I mean, now that everybody has broadband and it's like, oh, what are we going to do? I'll sit down and, oh, click on a movie and y you've got, uh, you know, you've got thousands of movies at your fingertips. Yeah. And it, th th that's in it, the short term. In the long term, though, it's going to destroy films. It's, it's like, but the thing is, 
it's like the, there is going to potentially be something else that might come along. I don't know, but the the theater model and whatnot, like there's so many things that factor into all this. The theatrical model is has been dismantling films because you get these uh, big studios that are putting out movies in like three, four thousand theaters, and they keep raising the ticket prices because they keep raising their production budgets. People aren't going to go see them as much, and so consequently, a lot of the smaller films aren't getting released theatrically, so they don't have anywhere else to go. So they make a deal with Netflix to try to get their thing out there. It's it's really it's just a whole big convoluted thing that uh, you'd have to sit down with a market analyst and really hash all of this out to kind of get a little bit more of an insight as to what is and is not going to be good and who knows like where the future of uh, of the entertainment you know movie industry is going to be 10 years ago people didn't expect to be able to just turn on their tv and go to netflix or amazon and be able to watch whatever they wanted that was like mind-boggling like now it's just taken for granted maybe there'll be another company that comes along that does it and it does it in a way that is lucrative enough for the home video market but it's tough to say i don't know i don't know where the industry is going to go and hopefully it steers away from some of the garbage that it's been doing now because we're just getting uh, all of these lousy crappy safe movies and uh where we are losing a lot of the revolutionary films we're not getting the the breakout films everymore every now and then we'll get like one but it's just they're they're going they're hedging their bets on the safe movies and time and time again they're flopping I can't really hate Netflix. I mean, I've discovered a, a lot of pretty cool recent independent films uh, that I normally wouldn't have found any other way besides maybe a video store. Like the first time I ever saw Cold in July, which is a really good sort of 80s-centric uh, snuff film-based kind of film, which is really, really one of my – among my favorites in terms of recent stuff. But I also have to agree with the fact that – they, they really don't give filmmakers nearly enough money that like the, the video store days would. And that is hurting the quality of a lot of these recent films that are coming out. But also in terms of what Cecil said, I mean, we never know what, what it might be down the line five, 10 years from now. I mean, as he said, 10 years ago, nobody figured that we'd have something like streaming going on. And what I've also noticed as of late is you, you have, um, a lot of Netflix clones that are showing up, a lot of other movie streaming sites now, albeit at this, they're usually just being made for films that already exist like it's sort of netflix doesn't have the biggest cult or exploitation or like say slasher or action section to it uh, besides like more of the uh well-known stuff where you have a lot of streaming sites now that are that are popping up that have a, a bigger selection of stuff like that you know you could you could see movies like uh uh, Samurai Cop or Frankenhooker or something like that on some of these sites or like some random Japanese or Italian exploitation types of movies and, and with the birth of more of these sites popping up, there's a possibility, you know, a company can be formed that are willing to pay independent filmmakers more money in, uh, in akin to the way that, uh, the video store days used to be because we do need, uh, more of a resurgence of that because as, uh, as Cecil also said to re, to reiterate this, we don't have a lot of those kind of groundbreaking standout movies. They do come out and there are some really excellent ones that, that come out that, that stay with you and stay in, in your memory. Like John Wick, one and two were both fantastic and I want I want more movies like that to come out because it feel it felt like the the golden days of the really good 
badass 90s uh, direct-to-video uh, action films of, of canon or, or full moon. If the John Wick movies were made in the 80s, Rudger Hauer would have been in that role, and he would have been fantastic. Ooh. Absolutely. Either either Rudger Hauer or Steven Seagal or somebody like that. Like it's a, Gary it's a, Busey. Dolph Lundgren. Uh, Dolph Lundgren. I, I could see Lundgren or, or Steven Seagal for sure. One of the more kind of like quiet, sort of silent badasses. But that's that's what it feels like. And I want more movies like that to come out. And I want more studios to to take chances on on movies like that. But it seems like the only way it happens is if 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 the star. Uh, invest their time and invest a lot of their money into it because Keanu really believes in in John Wick and, and this character and this franchise. I think he he puts up a lot of his own money, a lot of his own time. He he puts in the effort to to learn how to use all these guns and he's got like the martial arts thing that he's doing. Even even a movie like uh, I don't know if either either of you have seen it yet, but Logan uh, had more of a. Of, of sort of a, an independent, real kind of film vibe to it, I think. And it's because Hugh Jackman believed in it. He really wanted it to be this uh, great send-off for the character. A lot of these actors are putting up sort of their own finances to make sure that this movie doesn't get muddled by the studios and that it, that a movie that is truly meant to be what it was what it was meant to be like what it was envisioned to be is actually coming out rather than a studio meddled product or something that's that's uh, edited together by a trailer house like like suicide squad more more projects like this need to be done and i think studios need to need to take the fucking hint already that these movies do well john wick did well logan did well deadpool did well these movies that feel more like real old school flicks are coming out and doing extremely Extremely well. That thrills me to, to see things like that in theaters and stuff like John Wick and, and Logan is as awesome as that was. Like I get excited to see movies with with passion behind them, but it's it's kind of tragic that they only seem to happen now when it can by be accident. done it, by accident or because the actors are sacrificing so much of their you know investing so much of their own time and their own money to do it because the studios don't believe in it and it shows that it shows how ignorant they really are. Vin Diesel. Put a lien on his house to be able <laughs> to do Riddick. But remember, Riddick flopped theatrically. It was, ironically enough, DVD sales that saved Riddick, remember? Well, Riddick <laughs> did... See, the thing is, flops don't always mean the same thing. You can have a movie that makes $10 million, but it costs $2 million. So in mm. the grand scheme, you know, you look at, oh, the movie, you know, it opened in fifth place, it's a flop. Well, not really. So Riddick, like, did okay. Like, Riddick, I wouldn't consider, I would consider it not doing as well as they had hoped. Riddick did bad enough that Universal was going to cancel the next sequel until the DVD sales came in and they went, ooh. But I think Vin Diesel probably would have parlayed something like, look, you want me to keep doing those Fast and the Furious movies? Sign the check for, for the next Riddick. You know? He probably would have. But <laughs> I, I want to talk about stars in a second. I want to go back to the, the streaming market for a moment. One of the problems is I think that the streaming market is going to bottom out because it has become too fractured. The infrastructure of streaming is too fractured. You've got Netflix, which you have to pay for. You have Hulu, which you have to pay for. You have Shutter yeah. that you have to pay for. You have Amazon that you have to pay for. Then you've got all the different TV services, like CBS's uh, Prime Service and all this. And they each have exclusive things. I mean, Netflix has Maniac Cop 3, and Hulu has Maniac Cop 1 and 2. You have to pay for each one of those services. And there are more and more popping up every day. Sooner or later, that is going to cause the bubble to burst. 
And I think until that happens, we're not going to see anything positive come about. The, the streaming market is way too fractured right now. The infrastructure is just not there. If you want to subscribe to all of these services, you're going to be shelling out almost $500 a month just to be able to see all the movies you want to see. And that's not even bringing into the smaller services, such as like Vinegar Syndrome or things like that. That's another fee on top of all that. The bottom is going to fall out of this sooner rather than later. Yes, Netflix and Hulu will probably be the victors. What that means is less competition, so maybe that makes prices go up, maybe it makes them go down. That we have to see. But also, you guys brought up the stars, and that's what direct-to-video used to be. It used to be we didn't care. The distributor didn't care who directed the movie. They didn't care what franchise it was. It was who's the star. And usually that was a former theatrical movie star on his way down. That tended to be who starred in these, and I think that's where that whole these are not real movies thing came from. You know, Treat Williams used to be in huge budget movies. Oh, and now he's in this direct-to-video action flick? You know, I think that's where that stigma came from, is the stars tended to be the guys who couldn't open a theatrical movie anymore. Just one quick thing, going back to the the whole bottom falling out of the industry. A large part of that, too, again, is going back to the studios. They first signed the deal with Netflix. Uh, I don't remember what. I think it was Stars. They signed like a three-year deal or something, and it was $30 million dollars. And so after the 30 million, after the three years were up or five years or however long it was, over that time was when the industry really kind of took off. And then when they came back and were like, okay, if you want our, uh, you know, access to our library again, it's now going to cost you $300 million for like one year. And that was when they were like, no why Netflix started looking into doing like their own content because then they could fill their libraries up with stuff that they own. They don't have to continue to pay licensing fees on it. They have to pay whatever royalties are, but they don't have to pay uh, these licensing fees to these companies that are going to be uh, extortion because as the market grows, every time it's time to renegotiate a contract, they're going to want some astronomical stupid number. It just doesn't make sense. So I think hmm. that that's a lot of, a large part of where that problem comes in now as far as different companies uh creating their own uh streaming market i think that that is uh, a large factor of greed because you had somebody like hbo who uh they had announced they're I like i forgot to mention that when hbo was a big one well, they were like, well, if we were to release our own, uh, you know, thing, the reason why we go through the cable companies is because we'd have to charge like a hundred dollars a month or something. Well, after people started pirating their shit and, uh, their, their subscriptions started going down because people were cutting the cable, that was when they all of a sudden discovered, oh wait, we can make an app and start putting our stuff out there. So I think that with certain, networks and with certain uh, channels, it makes sense. You have to agree, Cecil. There are way too many pay services out there for your average consumer that this this is just asking to the bubble to burst. 
Okay, but there's other tons of different car makers. There's tons of different manufacturers of televisions. There's tons, right, like but, there are but there's a unified model. Like on in the VHS days, you could. It didn't matter what company put out the VHS tape. You'd be able to put that tape in your player and it would play. Imagine if we had the streaming model in the VHS days. And I'm not talking about the whole beta format thing. I'm talking by the time VHS was the standard. Imagine if you wanted a title from Paramount. Well, you had to have a specific player for that. But 20th Century Fox, they wanted their tapes to have a specific player. Could you imagine? We never would have had a video market if this same thought process was put into the VHS era. I think the point that uh, Josh is actually trying to make, and I'll try to actually, I think the example you made, it's not so much the v- VCR being like a certain type of VCR to play it. It would be more like if you had video stores that was like, okay, this is a Paramount specific video store. This is a New Line specific video store. It's kind of the same thing with the streaming sites. A certain stream sites have certain movies and other ones don't. So you have to have a subscription for all of them. It would be like the same thing of having a membership for a bunch of different video stores that you'd have to pay each month just because you want to see these other movies that another video store doesn't have. So I see where he's coming from on that. It would be sort of the same thing as that would end up putting a, a pretty health, uh, pretty hefty uh, amount of cash that you have to put down for bills every month. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's like a lot of things. You know, of course, they are oversaturating the market because it is the next big thing. We could make a lot of money here, but mm-hmm. I think that the market is going to dictate. The market's going to go and say, all right, well, uh, this company is giving us the best, the best value and we're getting the most out of it. So they're going to end up rising to the top and they're going to continue. Whereas you got a lot of these other ones that are kind of coming along that, uh, are going to potentially merge together with maybe you know, maybe you'll have Shutter will get absorbed into HBO or something. And uh, so, again, you don't know, really. I don't think that the bottom that uh, the whole bottom is going to fall out of this. I think that there are a lot of these uh, streaming companies that are just going to go out of business and or maybe merge with somebody else to become a better version of that. So the thing is, even still, if you were to get Amazon, Netflix, HBO, and like Shutter, you would have a wide variety of stuff to watch and you would still pay less than you would have paid for regular cable. On that note, the, the consumer is very weirdly fickle. I talked to Bill Lustig when we talked to him last week a little bit about this. Since he runs Blue Underground, he has a little bit of insight into this market here. You, you run Blue Underground and before that you used to work at Anchor Bay. Can you well, explain? I never worked at Anchor Bay. I produced a lot of the Anchor Bay, early Anchor Bay DVDs, but I was never an employee of Anchor Bay. Okay, well, you worked for Anchor Bay. Uh, let me phrase it that way. How did Blue Underground come about, and why do you think Blue Underground is necessary, especially in the streaming era? I think that, number one, the reason Blue Underground started was I was told by a very good source that Anchor Bay was on the sales block. And I didn't want to suddenly be caught in a situation where the company is sold and I don't have any more work. So Blue Underground was started in in response to that um, situation. I feel that Blue Underground served the purpose because I really care about the films we put out. I personally, like this morning, I was personally doing the final quality check of Stendhal syndrome. So it's, it's, the company is definitely one where I give it my personal uh, attention and, and I care about. 
the stuff that we put out, the films we put out, feel it, it, it serves a vital purpose. Have you seen any kind of downtick or possibly uptick since Netflix and Hulu and that have kind of taken over? Because most DVD companies like Vinegar Syndrome and Synapse and all that have seen a downtick in sales in response to streaming. But the movies you put out, which I think are vital to be curated, they're they're the ones that I don't think are going to be big streaming hits. Have you seen things go steady at all? Well, it's interesting. Um, I was talking to somebody just before. The spaghetti westerns do surprisingly well in the digital world. Uh, they do well on Hulu. They've done well on, on, uh, in the digital world. The horror classics do okay, but they do better in the physical world. They do better in the Blu-ray DVD sales. So that's what I've seen. There are certain genres that tend to do better on streaming than others. No. Explain a little bit about what Blue Underground does. What's Blue Underground's mission? Because I think you can probably explain it better than I could. Why Blue Underground is well regarded as one of the top, I hate this word, but cult movie companies mm-hmm. out there. Well, I mean, I think that's just it. We are a cult movie company. Because the definition of cult films are films that didn't necessarily do well in the theaters uh, when they first came out and were later kind of rediscovered by fans. And uh, there's been many examples of that. I think that that's what's kind of fun. I'm putting out, as an example this summer, I'm putting out some Dick Moss movies that have been unavailable for many decades that I think are going to be like a real surprise to fans. I'm putting those films out in, in beautiful brand new special editions with commentary with uh, from Dick Moss, the director, and uh, we transferred right from the original camera negatives, and we're putting out, they're really putting out these really gorgeous titles. And that's what's fun, is, is going back and giving films that are worthy, uh, they're just, uh, they're, they're just, you know, giving them justice, putting them out there and letting, letting them uh, be seen by new generations of horror fans. We were also putting out Deathline, uh, which was uh, released in this country as raw meat. Now, what's interesting about that film, the only element that MGM had was an old, what's called a uh, CRI, which is a old dupe negative from like 45 years ago. So when you saw the Blu-ray, I'm sorry, there was never a Blu-ray, but if you saw the DVD or or the VHS of Raw Meat, half the movie you couldn't see because it took place in the London Underground. The information, there was no detail in, in the picture. We went back to the original camera negative, which is beautifully shot. And so now you have these gorgeous, creepy London underground scenes where you can actually see what's going on. They're not a radio show where you just hear sounds. It's like a rediscovery. And and that's why Blue Underground is so important. And that that was going to lead into my next question. Do you think that Blue Underground is bringing these movies to an audience that may never have picked them up otherwise? For instance, I picked up Last Halloween – your DVD of Fulci's Zombie in the $5 bin at Walmart. Wow, okay. I didn't know it was there. That movie is such a classic. Right, but being in Walmart, you're going to hit an audience that might not have sought this out, but go, what is this zombie movie? Yeah, I mean, I guess there are people, I guess there's the bargain bin non-collector market, which, um, you know, we will 
people will pick up on it because it's a zombie movie. So what is Blue Underground's mission? Is it to curate every obscure horror movie you can find? Or are you just looking for specific types of cult films? There isn't a... Look, there's no way we're going to be able to acquire every film that we want. I have, number one, a lot of them are not available for various reasons. And number two, I have a lot of competition out there. I got, as you mentioned, Synapse, Arrow, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin. You know, I could go on and on. Code Red, uh, Scorpion. You got all these players out there that are kind of cannibalizing the marketplace. So I just figure I'll let, I'll let serendipity rule and I will seek out certain films. And if I get them, great. If not, well, I'm not going to get it, you know. But I'm very particular in not only acquiring rights, but making sure I could get the uh, the best materials. Because there's no point of acquiring rights and putting out a mediocre release. That doesn't make any sense to me. Do you, do you see a difference between the, the type of sales you're doing at Blue Underground? And I know you didn't technically work at Anchor Bay, but when you were working for Anchor Bay, from the Anchor Bay era to the Blue Underground era, do you think things have changed greatly? Well, there's no doubt about it. When when Anchor Bay entered the DVD market, they were it was one of the first companies to do so. Even the studios weren't in the DVD market initially. So you had these stores that had empty shelves with people who had just bought DVD players, and this and you had uh, you, you know they 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 were gobbling up everything you put out and gobbling it up in huge quantities. So as the shelves got filled, well, the, the, you know, the buying has uh, slowed down. Even the fans. I mean, they only have so much room in their house. At some point, they got to be more discriminating in what they buy. I try to maintain quality. You know, I, I, I don't look to put out quantity. I, I look to put out quality. Therefore, I hope that I'm, they give me the benefit of purchasing my, my Blu-rays. You know, just because they know that they're going to get a quality product the same way I would if I was buying a Criterion. But before we were talking about, you know, how you sell these movies, there used to be pre-sales. You had the stars, which we need to talk about, and then you had the glorious covers. Because that's one part where direct-to-video absolutely kicked the shit out of the studios. Mm -hmm. They would have the most garish, over-the-top beautiful cover art that almost never that was almost never indicative of what the movie inside that sleeve was and <laughs> the, the studios didn't tend to do that because when you think of video covers from the vhs era i bet every one of those things you think of is a dtv movie isn't it absolutely oh for sure um all the best covers were were for like straight to video stuff for the, for the most part because there's so Strike many like commando guess, with reb brown with that gun oh with all God. the little guns inside it all the barrels yeah on uh, another another great one that's uh, a much better cover than the actual movie itself and it's for both films it's for the exterminator movies i mean exterminator 2 especially where you have the character in like the iron mask and like military fatigues with his like arms just bulging firing a it looks know, firing... like a post-apocalyptic wasteland behind him yeah 
He's shooting the a flamethrower flame with like all this, all the post-apocalyptic stuff behind him and like the city's just like burning in the background. It just says Exterminator 2 in like heavy metal font and it's just, it looks like the greatest movie ever and the movie itself is, is cool, but it's, it's nowhere near as awesome as the, as the poster <laughs> made it look, which yeah, I think that was just a, a massive selling point of, of a lot of these movies is they had to sell you on that cover because where would you see the trailer? You're not going to see the trailer, you know, before a movie in the theaters. You're not going to see the the trailer on tv anywhere the trailer is that box it's that box art while you're scrolling through the different sections of the video store it's got to catch your eye and then you pick it up and you go watch it boxes for movies like carnosaur and exterminator 2 and uh you know strike commando all the hands of i have the tiger these movies I have the tiger with Gary Busey and his his massive crotch holding some little girl <laughs> that that looks uh, that looks forty. All of these uh, all of these covers were just fantastic, and they would immediately make you want to pick up the movie and go watch it because it's like this looks like the most awesomely over the top thing ever. And sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. In I have the tiger's case. It's that cover actually kind of does perfectly represent that film. And uh, same with um, Sir, uh, Sergio Martino's Hands of Steel, for instance. The cover of that movie, as ridiculous as it looks, is actually perfectly indicative of what the movie is. So and how disproportionately large his arm is on that cover. That's because it's that's because it's uh, close up to the to the camera. I think it's more of a of it's it's more depth, I guess. But everything you see on that cover happens in the movie, though. There's a helicopter that's like firing on them there's like a music hall that shows up at the end there's there's the uh truck that's exploding you know there's the terminator knockoff thing on his arm the actor looks exactly that looks like daniel green paco kurek paco kurek the uh the the cyborg with um i think it's like one of the things is no negative characteristics or something but that one's a perfect example of picking up one of these movies and looking at the cover and, and watching it it's like wow this is actually as advertised this is as over the top as it stated it would be and that was definitely the selling point of that stuff because i think not only would you be drawn to the cover but you would remember seeing another one like a few weeks back and go you know that other movie was really good i'm going to check this one out too which you really don't have anymore especially for for directive video stuff i i saw the cover of a movie i really actually enjoyed a lot which was hard target 2 that was starring uh scott atkins who's one of my favorite b-grade z-grade kind of action dudes who's mainly known for doing like stunts in in uh, blockbusters but his like solo stuff is great but i i picked up the cover for uh it was in in walmart in like the five dollar bin or something because i had been i'd been looking for a physical copy of it because i had watched it streamed the first time and i just looked at the cover and it's just this crappy photoshopped garbage of just him striking like, like an action pose with like a red background and it just says hard target too and it's like this movie deserves such a cooler cover than this because it was an awesomely done film it was one of it's one of my favorite like sort of independently uh lower budgeted uh dtv movies to come out in recent time and i feel like scott atkins himself deserves so much more credit as uh one of these stars and deserves to be in hollywood movies other than just being some guy that benedict cumberbatch beats up in doctor strange which i call extreme and utter horseshit on because i i really miss those days of the over-the-top covers for these over-the 
top direct-to-video exploitation, lower-budgeted action movies, and we're we're just not getting anymore. The covers are are so boring, and they're not they're not advertised nearly as much as they could be because that that was the sort of the platform. The video store showed you those covers. That was the trailer for these movies. We don't get that anymore. Where are you going to see the trailers unless you like discover it somewhere randomly online and you have to go search it up on YouTube or something? Because half the time you're not going to find these movies on Netflix. Didn't Charles Band say they would make the poster first and then they'd make the movie? <laughs> he he did. That's a good idea. He did, but to be fair, he got that from Roger Corman. Roger Corman used to do that in the AIP days. They would make the poster and then say, before a script was even written, now go make the movie. Right. And the thing was, they did at least (laughs) keep it close. I'd say closer in the Empire era is when they did that more. I think making the 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 cover was less important first in the Full Moon era. In the Empire era, absolutely. (laughs) There's a movie, uh, if you want to talk about a movie like being sold by the cover... There's a movie called Cobra vs. Ninja. It's got one of the greatest <laughs> The Godfrey Ho covers, one? The Godfrey Ho one. It's got ninjas. There's one with a freaking with a handgun. Uh there's this <laughs> truck plowing through these cars on fire. Two yeah, ninjas. None of that happens in, in the city. movie, by the way. I've a seen helicopter. this film. None of this happens in the movie. Not even <laughs> close. Dudes wearing ridiculous ninja outfits. You've got white guys with afros, like in ninja outfits, with headbands that say ninja on them (laughs) (laughs) just in case you didn't know cecil in case you didn't know they were ninjas it's terrible but i bought the movies real ninjas wear pink and wear pink outfits with yellow headbands that just blatantly say ninja yeah they're played by pierre kirk well it has one of the greatest openings because like there's there's a ninja and he he just assassinated someone and then all of a sudden (laughs) he gets he gets hit with this card and he's like what (laughs) And he's like, we have, we have to fight now. You can't uh, refuse a fight after I've given you my ninja challenge card. I'm like, I love this. This oh, is man. It's so bad. But I never would have watched it if not for that fantastic cover. My eye, and I just had to see this. That a lot of uh, a lot of those movies, a lot of the uh, the horror movies and stuff, they just had those beautiful hand painted covers, and just uh, they really saw the amount of effort that was into it. Uh, up from the depths, the mo- a movie I just did has an amazing cover, and I mean, then the movie costs like five dollars, but like they. <laughs> put wow. a lot of effort into that was roger corman too that was a corman one yeah that was the uh that was their you know follow-up to to piranha they put a lot of effort into them and i'm not saying that that's false advertising because i think that it's just it's a way of getting your attention and yeah. you're not seeing that with all these lousy crappy photoshops of floating heads we, we have to talk about the true pioneer in direct not not necessarily direct to video but you know, he would be that later, which would be Charles Band. We mentioned earlier, back in the Empire days, you know, he was, the Empire films were theatrical films, but he also had wizard video. I mean, he didn't invent home video, but he invented what we think of as home video. I mean, to the point mm. where when he was licensing these movies for wizard video, his lawyer didn't even know what language to use in the contracts. This was all so new that they invented what became the language of video contracts. In the Empire days, he would see a healthy run on his theatrical movies, and then 
as an early adopter of home video, he would see a huge sell-through on these movies, almost making more money in some cases than their theatrical runs did. So that eventually led him to Full Moon, where he was like, you know what? We can't compete in the theatrical market anymore, you know, because mid-budget filmmaking was at a lull at that point. It wasn't dead like it is today, but it was at a lull. So he decided, let's just focus on home video. And Full Moon absolutely knew what the hell they were doing. They took so much advantage. Charles Band, for all of the stories about him, he was a smart motherfucker, and he knew how to manipulate that. I mean, hell, he decided, hey, if people are going to be, we're asking people to buy, you know, we got to put this into the context of the late 80s, early 90s, a $35 to $40 VHS tape, they need more than the movie. So he would load them with six, seven trailers and an exclusive making of with the Full Moon Video Zones. He basically invented movie extras. Yeah, I will never say a bad thing about Charles Band. I think that uh, he was, uh, he, he, like, and not being sarcastic at all. He was visionary. He saw a lot of things coming, and he catered his company towards that and was successful because of that. So I think that, uh, you know, he did a great job of that. I'm kind of sad that uh, Full Moon did go out with a whimper, and it's now very slowly coming back. You can only reinvent yourself so many times, and so I think that uh, he did really do it as, as good as he could, but eventually streaming did kind of take its toll on a lot of uh, smaller things. I know he's he's got to deal with Amazon right now with the full moon thing, and it seems to be doing well. I see more and more people kind of picking it up, and uh, so maybe he will end up bouncing back from that, you know, because he's making, he's back to making episodic movies. They're not the episode like we they're not the good i'm sorry that 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 raven thing is just not good and and like trophy heads and it's like you know they don't have the the flair they don't have like the you know the charm of like transfers or whatever production value anymore and they don't have the production value either so i don't know what exactly is going i really 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 i want them to come back in full form but uh right now i i don't know uh i think that the they're deal that they have with Amazon, I think it is at least worth it because you're not just getting full moon movies, you're getting the full, you know, you're getting the full moon catalog, you're getting their newer stuff, you're getting their older stuff, but you're also getting a lot of other stuff that they have the rights to. So it's kind of cool because you're getting a, a lot of access to a lot of weird ball movies that aren't on any other platform. So I think that they at least have that market down and they're doing it well. But uh, as far as full moon uh, returning to form, I don't know. I, I still, I have um, some of the more puppet more recent puppet master movies and i just i have not watched them yet i want to but like a lot has changed and they're not as good as they were back then i don't know the 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 old movies were just such a joy and uh the new ones i don't know i probably will one of these days all i can say is that i'm i'm happy there are uh charles band movies like uh eliminators out there that is a nice reminder of what a lot of these directive videos were and the ingenuity that went into them, the passion that went into them, the creativity really that went into them. Um, and it's, it's such a far cry from a lot of what we're seeing now, other than maybe like movies, like, you know, movies that kind of come out a little quieter, like turbo kid even had a very old school Charles, Charles band feel to it. You know what? With turbo kid, I absolutely could have seen empire releasing that if it were an actual eighties yeah. movie. 
Yeah. It even had an awesome, uh, awesome Empire Pictures style, like, poster. Like, it looks like, uh, the poster for that movie is very much like something that would have, would have come out back then. And it's, I think it's just because, for whatever reason, they were, they were allowed to make that kind of movie and they obviously had a, a decent amount of, of distribution for it. Were able to make something really didn't feel so much like, like an 80s centric movie, movie, but felt like an 80s movie. They just went out and made exactly what they wanted to make. And possibly if, if Full Moon were, were able to acquire maybe filmmakers like that to do movies for them, I, I think you could have something a lot different rather than what's an unfortunate factor of a lot of these aging directors like Charles Bann and even John Carpenter is they're not quite the same filmmakers they used to be. In, in John Carpenter's case, it seems like if you, if the more of, the more of a budget you give him, the weaker the movie seems seems to be and i think that's pretty obvious with movies like escape from la or ghosts of mars or, or films like that compared to something like assault on precinct 13 or escape from new york and the same thing seems to happen with charles band is that the digital age seems to hinder a lot of these directors so maybe what they need to be doing um especially in full moon's case is finding some of these uh some of these independent filmmakers like uh i, I forget the director or writer or whatever whoever did a uh, turbo kid get people like this to maybe do the do the movies and create some of these ones that that shine sort of the same way the the movies of yesteryear did and had the same passion to it because these are younger more hungry filmmakers they're they're sort of what what guys like Charles Band and, and John Carpenter and Roger Corman used to be and and you want to see more movies like this come out and that's not and I'm not like kicking dirt on Charles Band or anything but it's just you know full moon is is not what it used to be it, it's not doesn't have the same amount of heart to it and it seems like movies shot on digital seem to make these filmmakers a little more lazy like it seems like the the more budget one of these old school filmmakers get the the more they kind of seem to cut corners because they think oh well this is easy we can just do that or we can edit this color in and post and it's pretty blatant rather than doing a lot of color on you know in camera i would actually say along those lines look at like the david dakota movies he made in the direct-to-video era of the 80s and you look at the garbage david dakota is making today you'd never guess it's the same filmmaker charles band has been very open about how streaming killed this company. Because Full Moon obviously was always based on video sales. And he, he was an early adopter to DVD and the DVD sales. The streaming market, as I said, they don't pay shit. So even when he would sell these to Netflix in their earlier years, he was not making ass off that. And then not, and then he tried their own paid service for a while with Full Moon Streaming. Nobody bought it. The movies are out there, but nobody wants to pay for them. No streaming service is willing to pay what they're worth. So, I mean, he literally had to shoot a movie a couple of years ago where his office was made up to resemble a dorm room. Oh, man. The budgets are so low that they're not... I'm going to go to Tarantino here. They're not even real movies anymore. Streaming doesn't pay. And you might say, well, again, you know, that's the corporate side. But if they're not paying, then they can't make the product. That's what people don't understand. Well, streaming is so much easier for me as a viewer. Yeah. Now... But in 10 years, when nothing worthwhile has come out because of streaming, you're going to be going, wow, that kind of bit me in the ass eventually, didn't it? It's just a slow bite. You're an old man yelling at clouds. You won't say that in 10 years when the movies are literally being made for $100. Hey, you know what? We could 
like, I do think that what is going to cause more damage to the industry is these 300 and 400 million dollar productions. We're not getting the smaller films anymore, or if we do, they're just indie films that are not getting any of the attention that they would have a few years ago. It's because so many studios are dumping everything that they have into these bigger things. That's kind of why I'm glad that Blumhouse uh, has turned their market around. The past two years, they've done full reverse, man. They've really started putting out very, very high quality stuff, and they're keeping their budgets capped at five million. It's fantastic. Oh, they're okay. smart. As, as much as as much as I don't like Blumhouse's films, they are in a weird way carrying on the spirit of Full Moon with Split and Get Out. And, you know, Sinister, like, they are doing, they're doing a lot better job than a lot of the larger budgeted movies because they're doing these smaller films, they're taking risks, and they're the kind of movies that we are asking for, and the box office returns are seeing that. So I think that uh, they've got a smart thing going, and hopefully they stick with that and they don't make any more gems. Actually, yeah, now that I think about the, the Blumhouse thing, that that is something that could be something to look forward to in the the coming years because yeah i haven't seen get out yet but i really really enjoyed split m night Shyamalan movie again and that was a very interesting concept so i'm actually looking forward to checking out get out as well blumhouse is something that is kind of it's it's more akin to the the old school days of of a, of a smaller company putting out really really quality stuff for not that big of a budget maybe there's hope after all and see, I, I see the market bottoming out before anything. I, I actually think the floor has to fall out before the rose can grow up from the from the ashes. That's the way I look at it. Where can people find Cecil if they wish to contact him direct to video? Uh, you can contact me direct to video on uh, escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflicks.com, and goodbadflicks on Facebook and Twitter. Peter, where can people find you prowling the halls of the video store, still looking at awesome covers? Uh, you can find me doing that, and uh, make sure to adjust your tracking before you head on over to Twitter, where you can find me at Cinematica, Facebook, The Cinemasochist, YouTube, The Cinemasochist, and at 1201beyond.com. You can find me at the same 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
station calling John Wayne. Your love is driving me insane. Let's storm a foreign missile base, start World War III. Knock off the Ayatollah for me. Just give me action. Your love is the attraction. It's pure satisfaction. It's Come on and give me a little action, will you, hon? Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.